Welcome to the Board of Excitement podcast from Public Grief Junkie. Hello there and welcome to our very second podcast. Uh, my name is still Paul and uh, this week, following on from last week's jaunt around the informal economy, I'd like to look at fictitious market traders and by that I don't mean um, Del Boy and Rodney and people off EastEnders and stuff. I mean people that simply couldn't have existed selling stuff that also simply couldn't have existed, that are held up to people who actually exist, like myself, as models of good business. The second thing we're going to do after that is I'm going to ask you to pack your suitcase, sort out your passport, your Victorian London passport, that is, uh, because we're going to hop in the old TARDIS and uh, meet a hairdresser and a bear, which you'll need to pack your happy face for. Not that it's a particularly sad story, but just to be on the safe side. Then, if you're too lazy to move your eyes from left to right across a very small screen, and we're all busy, um, I'm going to read last week's blog. But first, the news. The news. The main news uh, this week is that the posts and everything are now available on Kindles, which is nice. Um, the main reason I did that is because I love Kindles, and uh, I'm not one really for looking at stats and figures and stuff. But before doing this, I looked at the subscriptions for the Kindle blogs, and uh, there's been a few subscribers, which is nice. Thanks very much. I'm very grateful for that. And one person has put it in their wish list, right? It's a quid. It's a pound. That's that's all it costs. In fact, it's not even a pound, right? It's 99 pence. Now, that is price to sell. That is price to sell. I understand things are kind of tight these days and no one's got any money. But if you are that person and you're near Greenwich and you know where the stall is, come along and say hello and I'll give you a quid. Right, I'll, I'll buy. I'll buy it for you. I'll go onto your wish list and I'll buy it for you because I can't. I can't bear to have you suffering. There should be one of those like charity advert things. This is Laura. Laura is just thirty-two years old. Laura can't afford to subscribe to blogs and her Kindle like her friends. What of all the other bollocks she has to buy all the time? Can you help Laura or someone like Laura? And like that. That's what that should happen to you if you're that person. If you're poor, can you move along? Uh, I've got bills to pay, and if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, all right? As uh, as threatened, I'm going to read the first of uh, three bits. I can't remember I can't remember who I wrote this for now uh, or why I wrote it, but it's about fictitious market traders and the people who um, like them. South London, it's all Millwall and kiddies cutting each other. Horrible, horrible place, horrible. Perhaps because Camden is so sprawling and, even now, with all the same merchandise, enigmatic, everyone seems to have had a stall or know somebody who has had a stall there at some point. Most people also seem to know a fictitious person with a stall that never existed there too. I'm thinking in particular of the apparently vast numbers of people who earned a fortune hacking cans of coke out of blocks of ice for grateful customers back in the day. I traded in the East Yard of Camden Market for five years, and more times than you might think credible, was regaled with tales of how an uncle or a dad or a brother did very well out of this. It was usually on the lines of, Oi, mate, bit of advice for you. Awesome. I could do with some. Do you want to know how to earn a fortune out of this place? Uh, well, yeah, I would, actually. Uh, if you're offering to tell me, uh, that'd be awesome. You get cans of Coke, you freeze them in a big block of ice, and then you sell them on the pavement to tourists. Right. How do you get the cans of Coke out of the ice when someone wants to buy one? You chip them out. Chip them out of a chisel. My uncle used to do it all the time back in the day. Earned a fortune, he did. 
Right, how do I put the cans in the ice in the first place? Where do I find a block of ice that big? All I know is this. My uncle used to do it back in the day. Earned a fortune, he did. But the block of ice, how would it get here? Surely it would just melt. All I know is this. My uncle used to do it back in the day. Earned a fortune, he did. Right, okay, but the block of ice, right? Even if I could get it without melting, it would just melt all over the pavement once it was here. All I know is this. My uncle used to do it back in the day. Earned a fortune, he did. But trading licenses, what about all that stuff? You can't just rock up with your stuff and your ice and that. You need at least a fly pitching license, and even then it will be cast as an obstruction, I should think. This is a very busy stretch of pavement. All I know is this. My uncle used to do it back in the day. Earned a fortune, he did. Yeah, okay. Isn't it a slightly flawed business model, though? You'd need to sell a lot of cans of Coke to make it worth your while. Let's say you're selling your cans at a quid a go. And they've cost you, I don't know, 30p each, right? I've no idea how much Coke cans cost, but let's just say it's 30p. Then you're going to make 70p a pop. Suppose there's two of you, but you'll need two, right? You'd need to sell 200 cans between you to make it worth the day, plus whatever you need for transport and licenses. Also, you'd need to do that before the block of ice melted or before the owners of whoever's shop you pitched up out in front of, thereby blocking your trade, got annoyed and pulled a machete on you. All I know is this. My uncle used to do it back in the day. Earn a fortune, he did. I'll leave it with you. Be lucky. And with that, they would walk off. With a look that suggested I simply couldn't grasp the very obvious fact that carting glacial blocks of ice packed with cans of Coke through the streets of North West London and then selling them to an eager public at vast profit is the easiest thing in the world to do. Back in the day, walking up Camden High Street must have been a nightmare. What with all the ice discarded coke cans and huge stacks of money being earned by enterprising wide boys. Except it wasn't, was it? Because no one has ever stood on Camden High Street with a block of ice full of coke cans. And I'll be fascinated to know how this urban myth started. South London, no good, mate. And that story, I think me and Martin, who I traded next to, I think I heard that, I don't know, eight, eight or nine times in the five years I was there. And it must come from mm. somewhere. That must come from somewhere. I remember being at festivals um, ages ago, and quite often you have people selling cans of Coke out of a, or cans of anything out of a barrel. You just cut a barrel in half or cut the top off a barrel, chuck it full of water and ice, and have cans bobbing about in it. Right, I understand mm. that. Right, And it must, people have seen that somehow. Then one person has invented it, and then everyone has got on, the, on board because it's just nonsense. Absolute nonsense. How would you suspend the cans in the water so that they're all melted? That's, that's another thing. How would you. Well, the, uh, surely the physical uh, impossibility of actually making yeah. that. I don't know. The only way I could think you could do it was if you had uh, a bath. You've got a bath, mm. right? And if you put all the. filled out the water and put all the cans in then it would freeze somehow. I don't, I don't know, know how you would freeze that. You'd have to get your that. bath on wheels and run it into a massive like butcher's deep freeze. Yeah, assuming you could do that, right? Um, assuming you could do that, uh, that would be one assuming way of... Assuming you could do uh, that, you're probably going to make your money doing something other than selling cans, though, aren't you? Because you've just come up with a way of making things suspended in a giant block of ice. It's like fucking Damien Hurst. Yeah, well, assuming you could do that, assuming you could run into a butcher's shop and use his freezer, you'd make more money being a butcher because that's... <laughs> you'd have to be a butcher, <laughs> wouldn't you? You could just walk into Dewhurst with a bath on wheels <laughs> full of cans of Coke and water slopping everywhere. Yeah, you, are, you own a butcher's uh, store. Why are you selling Coke at Camden? Yeah, right. 
Just be a butcher. You know what I mean? Easy. What's Stop wrong with you? Stop off the butcher in and get, get back to the meat. Yeah. Victorian medicine consisted of no-nonsense remedies suitable for a no-nonsense era, whereas contemporary medicine seeks to cure an ailment with as little stress to the rest of the body as possible. The Victorians simply annihilated everything with laudanum, cocaine and opium. There was a logic to this. People who had little or no access to medical care would nonetheless, rather selfishly, insist upon picking up distressing illnesses, diseases or injuries. The most cost-effective way to relieve any pain thus generated was habitually imbibed narcotic substances, which would today see you either imprisoned, dancing in a field, or releasing boring albums for a very long time indeed. Strangely, the Victorian cure for drug addiction was to eat an orange at breakfast and another before going to bed, which seems a bit lame. Less troubling conditions also needed to be dealt with, which brings us on to the perennial favourite of baldness. In the mid-19th century, bear fat was thought to cure this. Barbers would sell it by the ounce, wrapped in something called lead paper, and it was popular for many years. Lead paper is used to detect hydrogen-based gases, and why it was used to wrap bare fat is a mystery. Particularly enterprising barbers began to advertise via cheerful shop window signs that they would be killing a bear on Saturday, Saturday being the traditional day for this sort of thing, and would be procuring the fat thereof. At the height of the bare fat craze, the actual bear would be displayed in the barber's cellar so that the public could see which luckless specimens adipose tissue would be available for retail on the following Monday morning. One might reasonably conclude at this point that things aren't looking too rosy for the bear, sitting on his haunches in a cellar in Victorian London, with days to live, being gulped at by cockneys and probably with some kind of comedy hat on for a laugh. If you were to hang around the cellar for a while until feeding time, however, you might detect that the odds were slightly more in favour of the bear than at first glance. You may, for example, notice a distinct lack of hostility from bear to barber, and the easy manner in which the latter was able to attend the former without being subjected to a ferocious and prolonged attack. Looking even more closely, the food seemed to be of excellent quality. In fact, as recommended by the hugely fashionable zoological gardens at Rudens Park, and the bear seemed quite plump. This made sense. The plumper the bear, the more fat would be forthcoming, and the more scalps would subsequently be greased, and the more cases of baldness wouldn't be cured, what with the treatment being nonsense and everything. Nonetheless, Saturday would come and go, and the bear would be no more. Fresh and therefore very expensive fat would go on sale to an equal clientele, and that would be that. London was far more local 150 years ago than it is today, and travelling from Commercial Road Whitechapel to Church Street Lisson Grove was a considerable undertaking. It was pretty easy if you were a bear, though. All you had to do was wait until some barbers led you gently into a straw-lined horse-drawn carriage and then led you back out down a little ramp once you got there. Then it was a matter of sitting in another cellar being nicely fed with the countdown to your demise once again in full swing. This is, of course, because all the barbers were advertising the demise of the same bear. Recent advances at the aforementioned zoological gardens have proved beyond doubt that bears do not grow on trees and that keeping them and all the other animals happy and healthy wasn't a cheap hobby. The fact that it took several years before a man from Whitechapel who had visited Lisson Grove on business noticed a striking similarity between the Church Street bear and the one whose fat he believed he had at home in the bathroom cabinet is testament to how successful the wheeze was. Even then, the man concerned admitted to being an animal lover and had been too appalled to actually use the fat he had been bought by his wife, who presumably was not. 
Whether the bare fat solution to male baldness was dreamt up by a commercially astute zookeeper is an intriguing thing upon which to speculate. It doesn't, though, explain why lead paper was used to wrap the bare fat in the first place, or, indeed, what the bare fat actually was. It is tempting to further speculate that perhaps the zookeepers are also in league with paint manufacturers and print workers. They might have occasional surpluses of lead and paper that they wanted to shift, and a handy way to do this would be by telling the barbers that they needed lead paper to preserve the bare fat in some way. You never know. Maybe nobody ever needs anything, and everything's a big scam. One thing is certain, though. However low you may sometimes feel, and no matter how trapped you may think you are, keep your chin up. You may just be the barber's bear after all. Blog. Dear Rachel, few things are as disconcerting as having your hair cut by an angry barber. So far, this has only happened to me once, quite recently, at Hobbs, an excellent barber's in Borough Market. I was first endeared to Hobbs, not only because of their strict employment guidelines, no one wants a male heterosexual cutting their hair after all, but also their habit of providing bottles of Bex, it has a bit of a queue to wait in. This provides an additional bond between barber and customer, not unlike that team-building exercise where someone falls backwards and trusts their colleagues from accounts to catch them. I've often been well lit up when I've taken to the chair and have yet to receive a haircut I didn't like, or at least eventually get used to. Anyway, as an argument raged, which as far as I could tell was about the conduct of a third unseen barber, I took my mind off all the sharp things and capacity for injury by contemplating a traditional race which used to take place between traders from Borough Market and Smithfield Market. I learned about this from an old poster on the waiting room wall. Each market would put forward a team to push a barrow from London Bridge to Brighton Pier. And in 1956, the Borough Market traders' winning team was 11 hours and 13 minutes. Brighton is 54 miles from London, and this feat is especially impressive when you consider that while stealing a similar barrel from Petticoat Lane, my old fluoride-shy sparring partner, Plastic <laughs> took all night to push it to Camden, just three miles away. A train from London Bridge to Brighton is about 10 hours and 13 minutes quicker than travelling with the 1956 Borough Market Barrow Pushing Team. And the Northern Line takes about 20 minutes of tooting back. Well, and it is delayed, of course. One of the best ways to cause a delay is to throw a middle-class infant at the closing doors of the Edgeware-bound service as it leaves Clapham South a circumstance I was able to witness for myself on Sunday morning. The child complied with the modern trend for middle-class parents to call their offspring names that working-class people used to call their cats, such as Oscar, Felix, or, as in this case, Tabitha. Tabitha was entirely unharmed, but appeared understandably confused as to why her mother, presumably called Laura or Lucy or Sophie, had decided to javelin her aboard the train rather than simply wait four minutes for the next one. Interestingly, the London Underground classed any delay of eight minutes or more as severe, which means that you don't necessarily have to be downhearted when faced with such information on the platform screens. Eight minutes is, after all, not a very long time. I use the Underground a lot, and I've heard the warning, stand clear of the closing doors, so often, that I'm wary of any doors anywhere at all, including ones on advent calendars, in case they start to close unexpectedly. The door mechanism will wait five seconds before attempting to reclose after you have thrown your children at it, meaning that, in theory, you could prevent the doors from closing 160 times before the delay you have created becomes severe. As unlikely as that is, Laura or Lucy or Sophie was attempting to make it happen while bracing the doors like Princess Leia in the rubbish compactor scene from Star Wars. I watched with interest as her husband sprinted up their train shortly before the driver strolled up the platform to investigate. Are you three all definitely on board, said the driver. Yes, said the husband, who had the look of a Ben or Oliver about him. Good, said the driver. 
do you want if I drive the fucking train now? I have no idea where they could have been going and didn't like to ask as they sat sheepishly in a carriage empty apart from me, them, and two blokes in Nigeria football shirts talking to each other in presumably Nigerian. I was glad they were there because they helped to prove a point later on. Later that day, a Catholic priest unexpectedly blessed my stall. The most overtly religious thing I ever do is eat as much cake as I can at weddings and funerals because you can put it down to either helping the happy couple celebrate or comfort eating in the face of loss. And, as a Protestant by birth, I'm an even more unlikely recipient of the sanctity of the Church of Rome. I didn't want to spoil the moment, though, as he is a regular and hugely likeable customer of mine, and he said it might help trade, and from his point of view, I suppose it certainly wouldn't hurt. I mentioned to him the incident with the doors and how myself and the Nigerian blokes had exchanged amused and baffled looks throughout. Ah, Paul, he said, adapting his language to suit the listener in what I now understand to be modern Catholic doctrine. It just goes to show that whoever we are and whatever we believe, we all know a bunch of wankers when we see one. And yes, if you want to put it like that, I suppose we do. Okay, well, that's about that for this week. Um, thanks for popping along. Uh, I'm very grateful, obviously. And um, if you want to get hold of us, it's uh, podcast at publicgriefjunkie.com or at griefjunkie on Twitter. Uh, just like to say thanks as ever to uh, Richie from Little Rock Audio, who uh, produces and edits all this. And uh, my there you go. And uh, we'll see you next Monday. Ta-da! That was episode two of the Board of Excitement podcast from Public Grief Junkie. Thanks for listening. 